A brain tumor diagnosis is a traumatic and life-changing event, resulting in altered priorities as part of a new normal way of life for a patient and their family. I'm Kathy Oliver, Chair and Co-Director of the International Brain Tumor Alliance. Since 2005, we've been creating a dynamic global community for brain tumor patient advocacy organizations and others involved in the field of neuro-oncology. Through our worldwide experience and expertise, we've been working to improve the well-being and quality of life for patients and their families. We advocate for the best treatments, information, and support for brain tumor patients, offering them, their families, and caregivers hope wherever they live in the world. In this series, we'll be meeting some of those working in the field of neuro-oncology, the people who support patients and their families, and those who've been told they have a brain tumor. We'll learn how brain tumors have affected all of these people, often in surprising ways. Welcome to A Brain Tumor and Me, a journey of inspiration, personal stories, and hope. How can a mother ever fully come to terms with the loss of their child? This is something which Denise Bebenek from Toronto in Canada faced when she and her family were given the devastating news that her four-year-old daughter Megan had an inoperable brain tumor. Megan eventually lost her life soon after her fifth birthday. In this episode, Denise talks to our reporter Graham Seaman about the effect of this traumatic event on her and her family, as well as the power of community. Her daughter's brain tumor journey also inspired Denise to start the not-for-profit Megan's Hug in 2001, which raises both awareness of pediatric brain tumor research and vital funds, as well as creating a circle of hope to support families affected by a brain tumor. Denise, it's really lovely to have an opportunity to talk to you about what has quite clearly been a very difficult time in your life, but with so many positives which have come out of it. We want to talk about your daughter, Megan, who was only five years old when she died of a brain tumour. What kind of a person was she? Tell us a little bit more about her. Well, Megan was somebody that loved life and loved everything in it, including her friends and her family and her animals. She really had a, a great sense of humor and was a very kind, gentle soul. And of course, my husband, Kevin, and her siblings, Matthew and Sarah Gray, she had quite a special bond with them. We had our kids, three of them, in five years, so they were close together. We used to call Megan and her sister slow twins. She loved art. She loved music. She loved the country. We have a cottage north of the city that has ended up being a refuge and a, a real gem, special place for us, given our circumstances that our family had to go through. And Meg was not afraid of anything. She just embraced life and everything in it as if each day was a gift. She taught us an awful lot, I think, about the preciousness of life. And she developed some very special friendships at a very young age. The beautiful thing from that is some of them now today are still with us, working with us on our campaign and continuing journey. So at what point, Denise, did you realise something was wrong with Megan? 
Mank was one that never really complained of things. And when she was four years old, we noticed some things happening that weren't normal. Her uh, drooling started to happen. She had a bit of a headache, uh, walking not in the right way that one would walk at her age. It started to get very concerning as the months progressed. It was actually a couple of months where she was struggling doing what she would normally be doing in playing and running and, and finding difficulty with that. And it was just before Christmas I'd said to my husband, I didn't want to have Christmas before getting down to brass tacks of what was happening with Megan. And we took her to the hospital for sick children here in Toronto, which ended up being the longest day of our lives. We found out quickly that uh, she indeed had an inoperable brain tumor and something that any parent, of course, is not prepared to hear. We were all, of course, in shock and what parent can ever be prepared for your child has an inoperable brain tumor? And you will just do everything we can, but you know, our job was to love her and embrace her for the time that we had. And it was on that date, uh, December 22nd, that our journey with Megan ended up becoming our campaign of hope in her memory and for all children who need our support called Megan's Hug. How does a five-year-old come to terms with knowing that something like this is happening to her? There's no words for that because it is something that we can't even imagine how a little person could cope with that, never mind us as adults and her family. But, you know, it was Megan who was the one that comforted us, ironically. And we were so blessed to be surrounded by an incredible community. Her school really rallied around us, as did our neighbours and friends who delivered food and did everything they could to help during her treatment, just came together as a community of hope and love. Megan just loved school and she loved her friends and she wanted to carry on the best that she could. And so we made it our point to make that happen for her. We did everything we could so that she was happy, that she could enjoy life and her friends for the time that we had with her. We started a treatment regime right away where she had radiation and we'd go to the hospital in the morning and it became a routine where she wanted to go back to school to see her friends and to do her work. We carried on with her swimming and her ballet and everything that she could do and wanted to do. She was in control of what needed to be done and made it her best to just enjoy each day. There was a special moment where one of the students at her school was reading The Thousand Cranes of Hope, the Hiroshima story, and the school decided to rally around Megan and they created a thousand cranes and they decorated the school and they decided to do what they called a crane ceremony. And I think that was a really pivotal moment for myself personally. It was the day the seed was planted in what became a campaign of hope for now thousands of children. And one by one, her friends 
encircled Megan and they wrote a little message on their crane and they gave it to her in a basket and the whole school ended up coming out. These are the origami cranes. They're the origami cranes, correct, yes. That was from the story that this grade eight student had been reading and she says, if we make a thousand cranes of hope, then maybe we can have our wish for Megan to be well. The wish was not granted, but it was an incredible example of the power of community and what people can do for others who are suffering in offering that gift of compassion and hope and love to a little person who was suffering and going through her own journey. Everybody embraced us in the next six months while we had Megan. And it really did help Megan because she didn't feel alone. I have learned that that really is the best medicine when people come together to help somebody in need. How honest were you with Megan about the situation she was in and what was going to happen? Did you dress it up in any way? Well, I mean, at four years old, there's only so much they can understand. She understood she had a brain tumour. She understood that there was treatment that she needed to have. We never said to her that, you know, you're going to die. We were always hopeful hopeful but also realistic but she knew she knew I think more Graham than our family even knew because there were many moments whereby we'd come back from the hospital um, and we'd be playing together and she would say it's okay mom I'm gonna be okay and more towards the end I think there was an understanding, a peace that she had when we did talk about her symptoms getting worse and, and when she was declining, she'd say, it's time for me to go. I need to go to heaven and you're going to know what to do. We had open conversations like that, but we never really talked about what that looked like in her leaving us and leaving the earth. She was quite sick in the end, but she still had this sense of calm and peace and in knowing that it was time for her to go. And so when we had to say goodbye, and I walked away without her, my heart and my mind were right away full of a desire to try to help other Megans who I knew were left in that hospital that were waiting for somebody to raise awareness about the seriousness of brain tumors. We had no idea it was a number one cause of cancer-related death in children and adolescents up to the age of 20. There was so much that we didn't realize. So this was a major turning point for you in your life. You wanted to make a difference. You wanted to do something. It was pretty much after she passed that I wanted to put the seriousness of her disease on the map and raise awareness and raise funds for the doctors for the seriousness of pediatric brain tumors. And I kept dreaming about a human hug because I knew that a hug is the best medicine. It provides the comfort that anybody who struggles needs and lets them know they're not alone. And I kept dreaming about a hug around the hospital that treated her. But I also knew that this hug was beyond just this hospital. I was thinking about the kids in her school and how many children came together to try to support her. And I thought about hugs at the schools. I thought about all sorts of things that I wanted to do, but right away I just knew something needed to be done, that no child should ever have to leave their family. I right away went after this vision 
I started talking to various people who work in events and who work in business and communications and talking to the teachers and gathered a team in my kitchen here in Toronto. They kept encouraging me to do something about what kept coming to my heart. These hugs that I was dreaming about. And so I, I set myself up with a meeting downtown Toronto with um, the city to apply for a permit to hug a hospital. And they were all kind of perplexed at this vision because they'd said I just lost my child and, and I should really take some time to grieve and be with the, my family and try and you know, get over what I had just gone through. And immediately I said, you never get over the death of a child and there's no time. Maybe serendipity or not, it was the very next day they showed up at my front door. The head of the, the city events and a police sergeant responsible for events in the city of Toronto with a permit in their hand and tears in their eyes saying, the only day we can give you to hug this hospital is Mother's Day. You go for it. This is obviously meant to be. Can we talk about your other children as well, Denise? How did they cope with what happened with Megan leading up to her death and then afterwards? Well, Matthew and Sarah Grace were also quite young, seven and eight years old. And so I think that, you know, at that age, it's hard to explain your sister's terminally ill and we won't have her for long. We chose to let them know that, yes, she was quite sick and she needed these treatments and we would do everything we could to help Megan in this journey and in the next few months of her life. But they saw us carry on in doing the, quote, normal day-to-day -day, um, activities and bringing her to school and, and going up north and embracing them in every way we could so that they also, it's enough of what they had to go through with their sister, but that so that they didn't miss out in their years, in their months as well, and were able to still do their school and do their extracurricular activities. I never expected anything from them, but they grew up a lot in those months. So now comes the point where Megan's hug takes a pretty significant step. Tell us about that. I gathered a team of volunteers. We got our office here in Toronto and we started working very hard and growing our teams. I knew that raising awareness and funds was very important for the seriousness of brain tumors in children. But I also knew that there were other opportunities that were important to me that gave me hope. And, you know, when I think of the schools and I think of the children and what they did, I wanted to bring this to a school level. And we right away got a school team with some teachers and principals and started talking about doing spirit weeks, as they call them, and, and hugs in the schools to encourage children to give back and to encourage their leadership and mentorship. And pretty quickly, we started various initiatives at Megan's Hug that would raise the awareness and funds on a 365 year basis. This was not just a one day event. This became a campaign of hope for all children. Of course, you grasp the nettle, you're doing things to focus your mind. But had you ever really stopped to consider what you were doing in terms of grieving for Megan? It's an ongoing journey. I've found many private moments when I've had to take for myself. You know, we had a family, we had to continue 
to help and to support. And we've been very close as a family. And so that became our priority. But, you know, one needs to find their new normal. When you're diagnosed with a child with terminal illness, the world stops. Everything stops. But it can't because you still have your children and your work and your lives to carry on with. And one of my favorite sayings actually is to be good to yourself because you can't be good for anybody else if you're not good to yourself. Denise, have you ever felt angry, unjust and unfair? Was there ever anything within you that surprised you in terms of how you coped with this? Well, for anyone that knows me, I'm, I've always loved life and embraced life since I was a little girl. When I was younger, I was injured in a very serious car accident whereby I, I had to learn to walk again. I was in a wheelchair and crutches through my high school years for, for two years. I had to fight to survive. I learned about the gift of life. I traveled quite a bit and learned about many families and communities over in Africa, lived on a kibbutz, learned about the communities there, traveled Europe, and was blessed with those opportunities. There's so much out there for us to do amongst a lot of tragedy, and it really is what we make of it. And how can I be angry when I see the impact of the research dollars, now over $6 million raised that has brought researchers from all our world together? I always wanted to make sure that the funds that are raised are given at a collaborative stance. And so we developed a fellowship program where these doctors have come to live in Toronto for a couple of years, gone back to their countries, and they're from all over our world who are now united in a shared mission of hope and love. And our school program gives me such great hope being a former teacher. When I see these kids who are empowered and are mentoring other children, our theme is kids helping kids. And now we've had hundreds of school hugs across our city, across our province, different parts of our country that have united children in helping them be who they want to be. How can I be angry? There's no anger. Obviously, spiritually and emotionally, Megan's there with you all the time. Do you have anything physical of hers that you still have and you keep and it reminds you of who she is and what she was? Well, there's a few things that Meg loved. There's a heart that she made for me. And there's a card for my last Mother's Day. And she said, I will always be your angel and I'll always look out for you. And so that card and that heart sits in her drawer. And so in my office here, there's hearts everywhere. And at home, there's hearts. There's so many people out there who have really been so generous to our campaign, artists, actors. And I think that's important because they have a voice that can get loud and make some noise around what is important uh, and that's why in the beginning we decided in order to make sense of this campaign and the different areas that we wanted to cover, we created an arts team. Canadian artists have stood united for this campaign and a school team. 
and what we call a community events team. We've had golf tournaments and galas and various communities in Ontario where the Opera House, for instance, in Gravenhurst has opened their doors and artists have come to play to offer their gifts. We have opportunities, events to raise awareness and funds and it culminates in our signature event of our big hug where all these teams and schools and artists and family members and people from all walks of life walk. We start in Toronto at Fort York. It's a big park. And then we walk united. And now at our last hug, of course, we've, we've been in the pandemic. And that was not an easy feat uh, to pivot a hug through the pandemic. But I think that's the power of our human spirit is we did it. We did it virtually. We celebrated last year our 20th year anniversary and we had people doing their own hugs and their own initiatives within their own community, within their own homes. When you look back on the journey from 20 years ago to now, how would you sum it up? In looking back over the years, I've been privileged to learn and read so many different people's stories, learn about what they've gone through, why they need our hug. We all have our own journeys and our own stories and sharing them, I feel, brings comfort to each other. It helps us feel less alone and that we truly are connected and part of something bigger than ourselves here in Toronto across our country and now around the world. We, we started off at the Brain Tumor Research Center with just over a dozen principal investigators and researchers. And now owing to the support of people like us, Megan's Hug, they've got now have over 120 principal investigators and researchers that are united. We've been able to establish a tumor bank for all of the doctors to use. And now we have national collaboration seed grants happening that started because of what started here in Toronto. And fellows in Denmark, Spain, Brazil, Argentina, Turkey, Czech Republic, India, who now work together. Of course, there are going to be people listening to this at the moment, Denise, who have been through a similar situation or starting the journey. And we've talked about hope a lot what would your message be to them in the context of hope? How sad if we didn't have hope in our day-to-day -day lives. You know, no one said life would be easy. We do the best we can with our life circumstances. And I always encourage families to just take things one day at a time, one moment at a time, and hang on to each other. Because there's a lot to be said about a family, a community that walks united. You're not alone. I think there's a great gift in volunteering as well. It's a chance to meet a lot of wonderful people who are like-minded, who want to give back. Many families who didn't know how they would carry on. But the one thing they say to me is that, gift that we gave them in their chance to volunteer, to give back, to share their gifts, to share their time, to share their hearts. It is an important tool trying to get through such a journey. You will find that through time you get stronger and that we can get through this together. 
That was Denise Bebenek from Toronto in Canada, talking to our reporter, Graham Seaman. I'm Kathy Oliver, chair and co-director of the International Brain Tumor Alliance, and you've been listening to A Brain Tumor and Me, a journey of inspiration, personal stories, and hope. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, just go to our website, theibta.org. And thanks for listening. This has been a Graham Seaman Media Production for the IBTA. (laughs) 